there isn't really a back of house anymore. It, you used to think of the brand as being something that was sort of like a veneer that was applied to the front of a, of a business to give it a look. And now the brand is completely visible. The whole thing's on display. So how do you, um, to, to be able to sort of engineer your brand, you have to think about everything that you're doing, be transparent about that, and, and present that to your customers in a way that is, is meaningful for them. This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. So today on the Safari, I have the privilege of being able to bring in people far smarter than myself, as usual, to talk about the future. I'm so happy to not be as stuck in COVID uh, quarantine as I have been in prior uh, episodes. Um, and we're going to de dedicate today to really talking about how consumer and retail brands will be able to come out of this problem, how the consumers will react to their environments, uh, and what's, what's in store uh, for retail and consumer brands and how they interact with consumers post-COVID. And I hope post-COVID is something that truly is happening. Uh, we shall see. Uh, only time will tell. So I'm, I'm joined with three wonderful guests, two of whom are from Callison RTKL, which is one of the most impressive, most uh, significant, large uh, architect and design firms in the world. Uh, we have had the good fortune of working with Callis and RTKL over the years on many product projects all over the world. And it's really uh, quite special for me to be able to uh, have a discussion from you know two different sides of the same coin, maybe, around where things are going in consumer and retail. So I have Paul Condor, uh, who is the VP and Global Services Lead of the Customer Experience Team, and Lily Olson, who's Associate Vice President of the CX Innovation and Insights Team. And the, the, the brains of the bunch from my side is uh, Erica Castle, who is Managing Director at Traub, and she is in incredibly talented Chief Marketing Officer effectively the CMO in residence at Traub, but really does all of that work uh, for all of our clients out in the field. So having our point of view and, and touting our point of view alongside the partnership that we conducted with Callison to come up with this Visions of the Future uh, white paper, which will be uh, released very shortly, um, which will talk about some of the things that people need to think about if you own brands, own shopping centers, um, coming at it from the different kinds of, again, vantage points on both sides of the same coin. So we should get started. Paul, Lily, Erica, thank you so much for joining me on the Safari. Thank you. It's great thank to be you. here. Thanks for having us. Well, it is, um, it is uh, very, very uh, gratifying to see you all. And Erica, there you are as well. How are you? 
Uh, very well, thank you. Staring out at the forest from Westchester. Yes, we're all over the place again. It's, I'm used to doing these things in person, and now we have to do them remotely. But that's that's fine. So, I, I think it would be really helpful is to uh, hear from uh, Paul and Lily just to kick off. Why don't you give us the one or two minutes on Callison for those who don't know Callison RTKL, and um, and then we can dive into the conversation about um, the future. Callison uh, RTKL is a global design and architecture firm. Uh, Lily and I are both based in New York, but we've got about 20 offices uh, around the world, about 1,500 design professionals uh, working in them. Uh, we're very well known for uh, several uh, different categories of, of work that we, that we uh, practice areas that we work in. Uh, we work both in, in retail primarily, but then we also work in hospitality um, and in uh, commercial architecture, uh, shopping and entertainment districts. And then we have a large healthcare group, a large workplace group. Um, and we find that we're able to work together more and more to be able to sort of combine the perspective on that field to innovate across these different sort of uh, what we used to think of as silos, we're seeing them more and more become integrated in sort of a mixed-use approach. Uh, the thing that's tying it together for us right now, uh, and, and we're a little bit biased because we're, we're part of the customer experience team, uh, is that we focus on the people that are using these spaces, what their expectations are, what their needs are, and then work towards a solution in the built environment, but then also uh, working on things like service design and the digital experience to be able to create a complete experience for, for customers. And Lily, tell us a little bit about some of your focus over at Callison RTKL. Sure. So what's been really interesting for me in the last uh, three and a half years working at Callison is we're really seeing the merging between patient experience, user experience, and customer experience, um, employee experience, uh, consumer experience. So um, in seeing all of these meld together, you're really identifying that there is one user across all of these different uh, specialties, sectors, or, uh, or categories of commerce. Um, and so what's been really interesting for me is to really nail down what that consumer is, what that user is, what that patient is, um, and what they're expecting from an experience point of view, and then converting that over to our clients and really talking to them from all the different perspectives that we have at our, at our firm. Hmm. And, and Erica, of course, you and I know each other well, but talk, talk a little bit about um, some of the work that you have done specifically over the last 10 weeks, which has spanned you know, customer insights of many different uh, uh, ilks. I mean, some of them were interviews with 25 consumers or 30 or so for in the beauty segment, ranging to um, a, a, an anonymized group of 5 million student uh, um, consumers sorry, who have effectively um, opted in for a study that uh, allowed you to see what the thing, what they were doing inside of COVID. Talk a little, a little bit about your background as well as maybe some of the background to how we got to do this with, with Callis and RTKL. Sure. You know, it's uh, when I really look at all of the different things that I've had the chance to work with when it comes to customer insight, um, I had the good fortune of working for American Express. Uh, which going way back, I think, was always known as a big heavyweight in understanding customer uh, behavior using uh, credit card uh, information uh, to really see how customers shopped. And that information was really in the past the only thing that we had access to. 
And fast forward uh, into my time uh, working at Chanel, heading up fashion watches and fine jewelry marketing here in the U.S., uh, we realized that there was more information that we really needed to understand the customer besides point of sale data. So we actually uh, took a, a big, bold move for a luxury brand and started surveying our customers about their shopping experience using an app similar to the Apple Store, uh, which gave us wonderful insights on the customer as well. Um, and sort of further fast-forwarding here into Traub, uh, we started in mid-March to collect information about what was starting to happen that we in the landscape of the consumer. And the small study you referred to was an ethnography study, uh, which really went right into the homes uh, by, by virtually uh, with an app to really understand the attitudes of affluent women on beauty and wellness and how things were affecting them within the first few weeks of when the shutdown began. And combined with the crosswalk study that we did, uh, which took those 5 million data points from over uh, from online active shoppers, we were really able to see where, where the customer you know, was going online, uh, what their activities were. And we saw very quickly that it shifted from want uh, you know, the, that people in the past really were shopping for beauty and fashion and things that they desired, like travel, very quickly stopped, you know, that week in middle of March when they just hunkered down and started stocking their pantries uh, with groceries and paper goods. And they completely stopped all activities across all generations uh, as far as, uh, you know, looking for fashion for sure that was the first thing that went way down fashion and travel mm -hmm. uh, but it just completely came to a standstill and um one thing that's so great about this work that we've done that basically spread from mid-march until just a few weeks ago is that we were able to split up these five million online active shoppers in by generation so we were able to compare what's happening with gen z uh, millennials gen x and um and uh, boomers, and to really see what was how those shifts were uh, different between the different generations. So the, I think it's a good point for me to sort of jump in and and explain, therefore, the link between a Carlson and a Traub. So we spend a huge amount of time trying to understand using consumer insights what our clients should be doing to run their businesses better, how to follow the customer in good times and bad times. And I think what's been so wonderful about our relationship with Callus and RTKL over decades is that we've always come at problems from a similar vantage point, except from another, another side of the table maybe, um, which is to say, uh, if we see and know what the consumer is looking to do and wanting to do, well, how do you bring that to life in the physical environments, whether they be shopping centers, streets, retail stores. And that is obviously an area that I think Callison RTKL is unrivaled in. And therefore, um, over to you two, Paul and Lily, we have come together on a study which shows um, some of the attitudes of the industry to what's going on as we prepare to open back up all over the world, and obviously you, you're a very global business, as are we, and you're seeing different things from different parts of the world. So the 
white paper and the the study, I guess, that uh, we are about to release is is very much um, colored by the experiences of each of our clients all over the world. And maybe I'll hand it over to you, um, Lily, to sort of dive into how you have framed it. Sure thing. So um, where we wanted to really get to in this study is to understand what um, consumers were doing all over the world, what they were expecting from brands, um, and the shifts in their behavior that we've seen over the past few weeks due to the COVID crisis. Um, so we wanted to talk to industry professionals um, and consumers alike from North America, Asia, Middle East, um, and Europe, and the South American markets as well, to really understand um, at the heart of it or at the core of it, what are those deep shifts that have been happening? How have consumers' expectations changed? Um, and what, what will stick around? What will come out of it? Once either um, you know there's a vaccine or past that kind of timeline, mm-hmm. um, so we spoke to a number of individuals across industries, across geos, um, to really talk to them about what they're seeing in their industry, and then also what they're experiencing as a consumer. Um, and we got a lot of really interesting information. Um, and together with Trout, we really narrowed that down into um, eight really uh, clear insights um, that really speak to how the customer is acting um, and uh, how brands will be able to support and really uh, outreach to, to be able to support these changes. So that's a good place to, to go. Uh, we have eight uh, areas to touch on. Maybe um, if, if one of you would start with each of the eight and let's spend maybe two minutes talking about each one uh, and then we can sort of summarize at the end so people have a clear takeaway of some of the things uh, that they need to, to remember, but also recognizing that they have a wonderful uh, study that they can also download and, and look at as well. So maybe uh, Paul and Lily and, and Erica take it from the top and let's have an open discussion on each of them. So several key themes bubbled up in our conversations. Uh, that I think is a good kickoff for us to discuss the eight major areas. Um, the first is that accelerated digital engagement um, is really what customers are now expecting. They have new standards uh, for service and transparency that, um, that they're looking for. And because of digital involvement, they're able to really better know what businesses are doing and they want to see what's going on under the hood, so to speak. Um, and there's a really been a shift, I think, from, uh, you know, globalized to very hyper-local ways of working and shopping and doing. So as much as it's a global world digitally, it's actually become much more localized as consumers are staying at home and getting involved in their communities. And, and lastly, I guess the big theme as well is that, you know, many of the changes that brands need to make are not new, uh, but they're coming to a head now because of rapidly shifting customer expectations due to the crisis. One, one of the first ones that, uh, that, that came up for us, and we heard, we heard a lot about this when we were talking to, uh, to our survey group, uh, was this idea that when you're uh, connecting with brands in a digital channel, the customers really got a lot more power in that. They can see a lot more uh, what the brand is up to. They hear more about uh, how the brand is behaving on an ethical level, how they operate. Um, 
and they expect to be able to have a, a kind of a conversation with a brand that works two ways. So instead of the kind of one-way transmission of information uh, that uh, brands are used to, and then you know, I'm thinking about things like advertising or one-way messaging like email campaigns and things like that, um, in this kind of space, we're seeing a lot of smaller brands able to get in there and actually create sort of a bit more of a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and that the uh, one-way communication is seen as being a little bit inauthentic. Uh, I don't know how many emails I've received in the last little while saying, you know, we're all in this together. And, you know, these kind of blanket statements that don't really mean all that much. But then there's a few brands out there uh, that have listened to their customers uh, and change their behavior as far as how they actually connect with their customers and how they operate. And they're putting that up front and they're asking for feedback and they're doing that in social channels so people can push back on them and the conversation is, is, is visible. Uh, that kind of thinking, I think, is going to be the future of how brands actually connect with customers and I think it's going to be a lot more a lot more useful for brands going forward because they, the connection can be a lot deeper. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. One of the things that um, it makes me think of is, and this may be a conversation for a little bit later on, but we can either deal with it now or, or, or put it in the parking lot. But I think there's, there's an interesting uh, design question around facades versus no. interiors. And whether or not uh, allowing uh, a consumer to interact with a facade uh, somehow, speaking of what you were just talking about, which typically happens online, but giving feedback on a digital screen, on a window, being able to interact with the, the window when they're walking past after dinner, potentially. Um, do you see a, a, a sort of a shift in how people are thinking about presenting themselves in that regard? Uh, there's there's a lot of new technology that is is out there that's making this easier and easier, uh, and I think that we're kind of done with the era of meaningless large scale digital. Uh, the really big, you know, sort of flashy, you know, for you know things changing color for no reason and things like that, and people are looking for a little bit more meaning in how they connect to these things. And so uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think that the, the idea of people being able to push back on every aspect of the brand, including how it presents itself in a facade or, uh, or um, also just general personalization at a deeper level for how, uh, how many options are presented to customers and what's relevant to them. Having that uh, sort of pre-sorted by the brand and curated a little bit, and then that story being delivered with a little bit more meaning behind it, I mm -hmm. think it's going to be a big trend we're going to be seeing that going forward. Thanks. Uh, Lily, number two. Yeah, and it's interesting. As you we were talking, Morty, I thought you were talking about the, the metaphorical facade and the metaphorical interior of a brand <laughs> in terms of how it presents and, and what's actually happening on the inside. So, But that perfectly goes into our, our next uh, insight, which is that customers, um, customers that we spoke to and, and industry, industry professionals alike 
um, are expecting brands to really work towards a better future together. Um, and that's using basically the voice that companies have at a larger scale to amplify the voice of their customers and to use their resources in a more equitable manner um, for social responsibility, diversity, sustainability. And we're especially seeing this as relevant actually right yeah, more now. More so than ever, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so kind of the action points that we listed out are really to listen to your customers as we're saying the two-way brand connection. What are their goals and what issues do they really care about and what do they stand for? Um, we're seeing that brands that are staying silent are actually being left by the wayside or being, quote, canceled. Um, so really to make sure that um, you have a voice, you do stand for something because customers do recognize it. Um, and then the next thing is customers are paying attention to where you're spending your resources. So uh, we saw an uptick, for instance, in, um, in certain brands getting more attention when they're using their resources to buy PPE for their employees um, versus not. Um, and so customers are choosing to buy from brands that are working in a more responsible manner, being more human as a brand. Um, instead of um, maybe not being more human. So that's that's interesting that we're seeing as well. It's you know, interesting and underneath all this how the, uh, um, you know, there's an overlap between the effects of the COVID crisis and then also uh, the, the protests that have been happening. Uh, right now, both of these are pointing towards brands needing to put the money where their mouth is, uh, investing in uh, fair and equitable and, and, and uh uh, diverse practices and 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 uh, being highly visible to their and transparent to their um, uh, to their customers. So I mean, it's there isn't really a back of house anymore. It used to think of the brand as being something that was sort of like a veneer that was applied to the front of a of a business to give it a look. And now the brand is completely visible. The whole thing's on display. So how do you? Um, to, to be able to sort of engineer your brand, you have to think about everything that you're doing, be transparent about that, and, and present that to your customers mm -hmm. in a way that is is meaningful to them. It, it, it's a lot more. Uh, it's actually a, a, a silver lining to the to all this. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Erica, you know, we, one of the things that we've, you know, that we were seeing actually in looking at how search terms uh, have shifted uh, over the past eight weeks is that there was a huge increase in people looking to see who received PPP loans. Mm. Uh, that consumers were very concerned about selfish, you know, larger companies uh, taking loans that they felt maybe were not appropriate that were designed to help smaller businesses and also looking to see how companies were taking care of their employees uh, during this time. Uh, which is, is to them a really important component of what is now seen as corporate resp social responsibility is how are you taking care of the people that work for you? Yeah, also it, we're seeing it in the ingredients stories. The searches for better for you ingredients have, have also gone through the roof during this period. So it's across the board uh, in, you know, whether it's corporate social responsibility or um sustainable products and better for you ingredients. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. All right. On to number three. Uh, well, we kind of covered it a little bit and that's just the, the need for transparency. You're just going into it, Morty. So it's, it sounds perfect. Um, but you know, that every brand is now on display. 
Um, and that, as Paul was saying, you know, the brand identity is no longer a veneer. There's no longer a backup house. Um, so customers are really wanting clear communication. Um, they're wanting to know what that ingredients list is. They're wanting to know how they're treating their employees. Um, they're wanting to know if they're working in warehouses, are they being provided with safe equipment, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. They're, they're wanting to know all the facets of, of an organization from an operational level. Um, and customers are demanding it, and they're starting to get it, which has been really interesting to see. I, I, and this, is, this has a lot to do with the customer perception, but um, the customers expect to feel safe as much as actually being safe. Uh, there is a... Um, there is a sense of whether or not the space that you're in uh, is potentially a, a threat to your health. And that's something that is very different than the way that we used to design. Um, when we design a hospitality space or a retail space, you try to make it feel active. One of the biggest things that we wanted to do for the last few years in retail is create a social space where you can sort of hand it over to the community and you can throw events in it and you can activate it and you can get a you know pressure of people in it. We have to think very differently about that now because the perception of of uh, a safe and healthy space is upside down from the way that we used to deliver value in these spaces. And uh, it's about openness. It's about um, you know the quality of the air. Uh, all these different things that are giving signifiers to customers uh, as to whether or not it's a safe place for them to be. Um, and so, and in that space, you have to work as much with the perceptions as you do with the sort of medical reality of how the virus is, is communicated, that that uh, feeling of safety and well-being has to be communicated in the end. Um, I, I keep on coming back to this on these podcasts during COVID, but the, the Vista Village shopping collection had a huge resurgence in China because on WeChat, uh, there was a lot of chatter around the fact that they had an open door policy, which I referred to in last week's podcast, which means that they never close their doors. So you never have to touch a door and there's, and there's air flowing through all the time, um, which is which is fresh air. And as a result of that, many people proactively sought out going to their centers in, in Shanghai because of that fact, which is kind of interesting. Um, so thanks for that, Morty. Uh, what, what, what I was about to say, and it completely supports what you're saying, is that people need to be shown that it's safe and not necessarily told that it's safe. So through visual cues like having an open door um, or visual cues like seeing staff members spraying down shopping carts instead of just a sign saying clean shopping carts. There are these kind of more visceral, more emotional cues um, to tap into that um, make customers feel safe. Um, in addition to just telling them that they're safe. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that a lot of places just smell different now. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. They, you know, it smells good now. Our apartment building, uh, the hardware store around the corner from me, uh, you know, actually the whole city, because it's not as polluted as it used to be. Um, but it, everything, just there's, there's, it's all five senses that are being triggered around these sort of perceptions of safety. And, um, I think if you if you sort of create a map of the, your customer's journey and sort of think through where the ick factor is, um, and and identify these these sort of key moments as ways of building uh, signifiers of safety in there, so that it, it's an emotional um, sense of security uh, coupled with uh, the sort of fun- more functional side of, of lessening uh, the likelihood of the transmission. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it, a good example of that is, is um, we just were working on a project recently with a, uh, a telco 
where they had in their stores a whole bunch of different uh, touch screens that you use to you know, sign up for plans and browse different products and all these things. And that was sort of what they saw as their omnichannel offering. And obviously, you can't have people do that now uh, as easily. You need somebody standing there with a spray gun and, and, and some Windex and, you know, everything done, uh, wiping it down. And uh, so, so uh, what we were helping them with was this idea that you shift everything over to the customer's own phone. And I know that sounds like a really simple solution, but we've got these very powerful computers now in our pockets that are, allow us to carry on any digital transaction that we want to. And a couple small tricks like using QR codes to be able to hand the transaction back to a staff member or things like that. So you're able to create this very safe yeah. interaction. The upside of that is you're creating something that's cheaper to implement than it is to run a whole bunch of screens in the store. And it's also way more likely that it's going to uh, work long term because you're creating one touch point that can be maintained by one team as opposed to spreading it out across a whole bunch of screens that are maintained by different, different parties and and how many stores have you been in where the, the touchscreens don't work? Yeah. You've, you've touched on a, a sort of a, a buzzword of mine that really gets my goat that the West hasn't adopted it the way Asia has, which is QR codes or any other watermarking which allows one to purchase directly from the phone. For example, you could be window shopping with QR codes in the window and be able to buy the thing even if the shop window was closed. You can shop magazines, you could shop a hotel room, and that's happening. I mean, the few, you know, I always use this expression, the future is here but unevenly distributed. I mean, this this stuff exists and it's happening all over Asia, yet we're in the dark ages sort of still dialing up and, and calling in for an order, right, or using a browser. Um how can we do more of this? Because how can we convince the Americans, uh, Westerners, uh, maybe it's a consumer thing? Because, you know, for example, we put an ad in a modern luxury magazine, uh, I think it was Hamptons Magazine last week, uh, for Orchard Mile, which is a company that we're, we're a, a co-founder of at Traub. And this business, uh, we decided to put the QR code in, and everyone said to me, oh my God, no one's going to engage with it uh, so just not bother. And I said, well, look, it hasn't worked so far, but one day it's going to work. And if there's one time it's going to work, it's in the middle of COVID crisis. Um, so I don't know quite yet what the results are of that. But nonetheless, um, do you think you can gracefully and will be gracefully incorporating QR codes and other watermarking into your designs, etc.? cetera? Uh, I, I think so. What we're... What I I think there were a, there was a very early adoption of QR codes that became very trendy, uh, you know, several years ago, uh, and uh, people didn't really tend to engage with them all that much because the brands didn't really know what to do with them, and it wasn't an easy automatic thing. You need a special app to read it, things like that. But now it's 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 automatic within uh, most uh, um, smartphones that the QR codes recognize them, and it can take you to whatever the link behind it is. And then at the same time, I think people are getting smarter about how they're used. So um, it might not be used for the flash of, hey, I can take you to a specific site. But it, on a practical level, uh, I think customers are going to demand that simplicity uh, in their journey because mm -hmm. you can remove so many um, uh, transactions that involve contact. Uh, you can make things quicker to be able to uh, jump between devices, things like that. And it's not going to be seen as a flashy high-tech thing. It's just going to be seen as a very simple solution to jumping to the next step in the journey. We actually saw um, a good example of this. Um, I think it was last year during the holiday period. Amazon actually had a pop-up in Soho 
where it was a showroom-like setup, similar to a bonobo um, or a, a neighborhood goods, and where they kind of had one piece of everything out on the floor and everything was merchandised with a QR code. So the customer could go in, you know, snap up all of the merchandise that they wanted to buy and all be put in one cart and it would all be sent to their home automatically without interacting with a service associate, without necessarily going and trying on. And it was primarily a touchless environment. Um, it was really interesting to kind of go through and, and explore and see what were the pros and cons of such a scenario. And then, you know, maybe what's next for the shopping experience in general um, from commerce. So that was really interesting to see and kind of goes on about yeah. the QR codes and connecting that back to a more. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, to the point of I think, the, the main bucket of this number five, which is they've, they, they've experienced how wonderful technology can be when used properly and thoughtfully and they will not go back to a time when it wasn't there because it's just too convenient um i heard a statistic that during covid 50 million um south americans meaning people in south america uh bought their first product online ever right so if you can imagine what that means um you know everyone they're not going to want to go back to only shopping offline when it's all over so it's it's very interesting go ahead Lily. yeah um and to kind of go off that we're seeing that the response from brands is they are um they're having this kind of whole pass period where they can um incubate they can test they can um you know uh, deliberate on what these experiences need to be and quickly push them out to market because um, customers are expecting things to have a little bit of kinks and, you know, maybe to have some bugs in them. Um, so they're okay with the experience not being 100% right now just because of COVID. So it isn't a great opportunity for brands to start testing some of those digital experiences and start pushing them out to market during this time in order to have it at 100% by the time the pandemic ends. So number six of eight is one that's quite near and dear to my heart, which is effectively... Um, allowing the customers to be makers, to be part of the the creation process. And, you know, we, we've actually got two companies. I referenced one of them, um, uh, Orchard Mile, which has a customized shopping street online where you can actually create your own shopping street, um, which is quite remarkable. If, you know, every woman can have, it's, a, it's only for women, the website, um, uh, female fashion and, and such. And and the other one is also customization of men's suits, a company called Not Standard, who I think have experienced uh, quite an interesting time during this period. Um, how do you see uh, the creation, bringing what we talked about back of house before, but bringing the artisan in some in luxury, for example, into the store, uh, but also having sewing machines in the store and bringing the thing to life versus what can be a very two-dimensional uh, experience um, of just walking in and effectively doing uh, what you do online, but by browsing uh, racks, which is, I think, terribly boring. Uh, so talk about this sort of a customized uh, maker uh, world that you're seeing. I think that um, people have gotten used to uh, doing things for themselves in their home. Uh, and uh, not that that's going to continue exactly as it is, because obviously, you know, we're, we're home a lot. But um, this idea that you're, um, that a brand could uh, use its expertise uh, and leverage that to be able to create more of a DIY experience. A good example would be uh, a restaurant providing 
a fantastic kit of um, uh, of food that you can take home and, and you, you can prepare fresh yourself, but they're using their expertise and their recipes to be able to get the right way. Um, another one that I heard yesterday, uh, it's a, a, a friend of mine's company, uh, has uh, started delivering cocktail classes online where they, they will send you in the mail uh, all that you need to be able to make four or five different cocktails. Uh, and then there's an online experience where you um, uh, you participate with other people and you do a tasting and you go through all the all the experience of, of making this up yourself. Uh, and uh, <laughs> when I found out about that, I'm like, oh, that actually sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. I'd sign up for that. Uh, as opposed to just going to the store and buying a bottle of liquor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? So it, it, there are opportunities out there. I'm not saying this applies to every brand necessarily. Uh, I, I think in fashion, it's a little bit more difficult, uh, but I, I think it's specifically in hospitality, there are ways to be able to create that at-home experience, and it could be something that will have value even after yep. COVID uh, is uh, received. Yeah, we saw also that um, you know people during this period um, were making a lot of bread, right? Every All the stores were out of flour, all the stores were out of yeast, um, and that provided a terrific opportunity for um, for influencer bakers, for instance. Um, so one account that I follow, Lion's Bread, um, she ended up growing her user base by about 250% um, during this time, which is crazy to think about. And she started holding these live classes where you know she would tell her followers to get a certain ingredients list beforehand, and then she would go step by step and really let them know how to bake a sourdough starter. How do you get from A to B? And then how do you actually put that loaf together? And, you know, it's two or three simple ingredients, but it's so demystifying to see these influencers and these experts kind of come to you. They're in your home um, and they're talking you through how to do this kind of rather complex experience. Um, And it's empowering for the users to be able to do it on their own and to really um, introduce it as a common behavior in their week to week. So it's, that's been really interesting to see. I, I know bread is a, is a big category. Bread, bread and all kinds of uh, food creation and decoration. Um, so n- number seven uh, of eight is about local, really. It's about being close to home and everything being close to home. What have you uncovered around this subject? So what we're seeing is that, um, especially in, let's say, New York City, which is uh, where Paul and I both live, and I guess all four of us um, live, uh, is that, you know, people are sticking closer into their neighborhood. Um, they're not necessarily taking the subway to go to down to the West Village from the Upper West Side or vice versa. So they're really expecting to have more of those amenities and more of the things that, that uh, they would usually shop for in their direct area. So they're exploring more of their local um, neighborhoods. They're exploring more of their local restaurants and, and other uh, shops in order to get what they would normally get at a department store, say, downtown. I think this this innovation has also really sparked local businesses to do things that they would have never thought of doing before Uh uh, to meet the demand. So as customers actually try out things like curbside pickup uh, from the pharmacy or having Target load your trunk with your stuff instead of having to go into the store, they're getting used to even locally using local businesses uh, to pick up items and get everything done very quickly in a way that I think is going to stick even after things open up. I I agree. Uh, I I think what the other thing that we're going to see is that 
uh, and this this will take a little bit longer to bring to fruition, but I, I, I think it's going to happen, is that brands will, um, where they may have one or two large locations in a city right now, may break that up into a bunch of smaller locations that are separate in the neighborhood, but each one of those isn't trying to offer the full service. So um, you might have uh, micro-distribution, you would get services being delivered at a small scale. And the idea would be that it's the customer journey at that point is almost entirely digital, but that last mile is being fulfilled uh, close to home. And um, you, can, you can get there easy. Uh, you don't have a whole bunch of people to negotiate with to be able to deal with the space. Uh, you can get in, get out, get what you need. And it'll be things like, you know, when you're browsing that uh, that product where you want to take a look at it before you convert or you're choosing between two things or you're getting some sort of service um, that you can't get in a digital platform. That'll happen at a smaller local level rather than having to get people traveling 20 miles to get to a great big location. Mm-hmm. And number eight, which is customers expect brands to kill the queue. Um, I think that's one that needs some discussion because, you know, I remember when Amazon Go opened, the queue went from inside to outside. And uh, while you have more space outside, it's either boiling hot or freezing cold in much of the country. So let's talk about how does one kill the queue? Maybe it's with QR codes and other things, but what's your thinking around that? I I think you would start by by thinking about how you can move – as much of it as possible into the digital realm and then have the, 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 uh, the physical space deal with that part of it that it does well. So start with that rather than trying to have people fulfill their entire journey in the store. Next thing would be uh, to consider things like appointment setting, setting expectations for how people, um, how much weight there is there so that um, you know before you go uh, how much volume you're dealing with before you get there having assigned times for the service, uh, breaking things up into smaller locations so that you've got more locations uh, serving the same number of people, but they're each smaller. Um, and then uh, also uh, thinking in terms of how you can create sort of a one-way path through a space so that you don't have people bumping into each other when they come through it. So it's more of a constant flow, a little bit more like, for example, as an IKEA would work as opposed to this I think this really also speaks to, you know, and kind of loops back into understanding your individual customers, Uh, looking at the data in a way that you're really offering them the services that are the right fit for what their specific needs are. Um, It's kind of no longer a one size fits all approach. You know, the perception that a faster retail journey is safer, I think fits for some people but not all people. Uh, So, you know, using the information that we can gather on each individual person's uh, behavior can also help us narrow down to offer personalized solutions for each customer. That's a really good point. Uh, We we completed a project uh, uh, last year uh, for a bank where they moved from being a paper-based, Q-heavy, old-school bank where you come up with a bulletproof glass and tell us behind you uh, it's a small community bank called Ponte Bank. And they shifted to a more digital model where the space is completely open. Uh, you could uh, stand up at a table with someone and anybody could provide any service you want to. And just that service model eliminated the queue um, and created a more personal connection. So th- their goal wasn't to eliminate the queue specifically, but by rethinking the service model, that was sort of the effect of it. 
what customers got out of that, if you ask them, would be they would say it was more of a personal service. Um, and they, they, their, their NDS and stuff went out. But the, 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 the effect of it and, you know, from the COVID point of view is, yeah, you don't have people standing around close to each other, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, big benefit. So we've gone through the eight, uh, I guess, broad categories. I have a few questions which are sort of open forum as we come to a close here. Um, and one of them is um, somewhat of a contrarian uh, view. I, I think it's, as we are all still in New York City, uh, there, there are four of us who are in New York State, three of us in New York City on this on this podcast. Um, we're still in lockdown and we've had a pretty rough uh, three or four months. Not that everyone else hasn't, but I would say we've particularly had a difficult time of it in New York. So it might taint our view uh, of the uh, way we will come out of this. So um, there's one of the things that one of our colleagues uh, wrote down as a question, which was the fact that you know live, work, play ethos um, has been really incredibly important to many of the younger professionals and the younger generation. And, you know, uh, there's a few people have decided that that's the end of it, the end of mixed use. It's the end of such, um, of such, uh, ways of, of, of developing and, and building retail or mixed use environments. Um, I don't agree with that. And I actually think that there is going to be a large group of particularly young customers who will realize that this, a pandemic did not affect them at all. Um, and that as long as they were being responsible and not exposing those who were potentially um, of a older generation who might be more scared about this and, and actually be, be actually potentially um, affected by this, this COVID-19 virus, that some of them who have been cooped up for three or four months might actually race back to exactly the way things were before and actually do it with pleasure and passion versus taking it all for granted. You look at the incredible things that you guys have designed and that your peers and other architecture firms have designed for brands, these temples, these incredible, beautiful environments, whether they be stores or whether they be actually shopping centers or, or department stores, or whatever. I think the consumers are gonna appreciate them more than ever having been locked in their homes for four months. I think they're going to go out there and say, wow, this is fun. This is, I mean, I can't, I can't believe how much I'm enjoying this. So there's everything we just talked about on the one hand, right? Um, what do you think about what I just said? I mean, I, I think there's another side to this potentially, and it doesn't have to be binary, by the way. There's some clients who will, particularly older clients, I think act along the lines of the eight points. Um, what do you think about what I just said? I agree with you. I think that there's going to be a, a, a good bounce back. And I think people have, I think people have realized how nice it is as things have started to open up a little bit to be able to have a social experience going out, you know, browsing a little bit, maybe having a drink. A lot of this stuff is happening out on the, on the sidewalk in New York right now. Um, it, it's not that things aren't going to change, but I, but I think that there's going to be a lot of positive change that comes out of this. You mentioned an excuse. Uh, I, my hunch is, we don't have a bunch of data on this, but my hunch is that uh, people will start demanding uh, that wellness is integrated more into a mixed-use environment. Um, that, uh, for example, things things that you probably wouldn't have expected with the beginning of this crisis, but things like uh, aging in place in a mixed-use environment where you're tying in retail and residential and, and commercial into, 
into this sort of tightly knit community, um, that, that uh, having people uh, isolated and stuck in nursing homes might be something that's going to be a thing of the past. And so you could actually have people aging in place better and communities designed to be able to integrate different age groups into the same neighborhood better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's going to be a bunch of changes like very, that that I think are going to be yeah. positive changes. And, yeah. And, 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 the, the, and, and so the, the mixed use thing isn't going away. I just think it's probably going to get better after mm-hmm. this. You know, it's it's going to be a, a brighter future for for this. I, I'm 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 actually quite uh, quite optimistic about what this is going to do to the way we. Well, I was going to ask each of you to to uh, give me a, a point of optimism uh, about the future. You, Paul, you just given us yours, so uh, why don't we get um, Erica and we'll end with Lily. Uh, I think that for me, uh, the biggest point of optimism is. Um, the response that I've seen uh, older generations have to what younger generations are teaching us in so many ways. Uh, we're seeing it in terms of um, uh, Gen X and, and uh, b- boomers learning from the uh, Gen Z and millennials uh, to do things online, to use social and digital tools to stay connected with each other. Uh, but also what they're teaching us about our being a community, uh, being responsible for one another. And uh, I've never seen a more important time uh, for us to really learn from the younger generations about what the future could be and uh, the contribution that they can make to that stronger future. Lily? Wow, I don't know how I'm going to follow that. That was uh, quite optimistic, but... Um, but yeah, so what I'm what I'm looking forward to is, is kind of two things. Uh, one is I've seen during this time period the amount of spontaneity and discovery has really decreased, and I think that um, people are going to be wanting that back once the kind of things quote return back to normal. So as you're saying, people going back to developments, people going back to shopping malls, people going out to be social with their friends. Um, you know, you're not able to really be spontaneous at this time. Everything is very closely planned. Um, and the second thing is, um, you know, I've, I've actually escaped uh, New York City. I'm down in Austin, Texas, um, here with my family. And um, it's been amazing to see the interaction between my daughter and um, my parents. And so that kind of multi-generational mm-hmm. relationship and the strengthening of that that people have experienced throughout this time has really been incredible to see as well. Yeah, well, hopefully that sticks around. I agree. I, I think across the board, we have uh, all much been much more appreciative of the things that we have um, and uh, and those that we have as well, which is is wonderful. And what a, what a, a graceful place to start. So Erica Castle of Traub, Paul Condor, Lily Olson of uh, Callison RTKL, thank you for doing the safari. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.